We will continue our study this morning on the book of Romans. Uh, We are in Romans 9, uh, verses 30 through 33, which can be found on page 946 of your pew Bible. Romans 9, verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Have you ever wanted to be good at something? Any, any number of things. Maybe you wanted to be a, a really good runner or maybe a really good singer or, or play the piano really well. And so you, you decide that to do this, you have to work, so you begin to work at it. You have a regiment for your running or a, or a practice schedule for your singing or, or playing the piano. And you work really, really hard. And then a friend sees you doing this work. And they say, you know what, I want to do that too. And within a week, they've already surpassed you. They didn't have to work hard at it at all. And they've already passed you in, in what they're doing. Doesn't that make you mad? When someone's better than you without even trying? Well, as we come to this passage, we kind of see a picture of this. We have Israel, and we have the Gentiles, and, and the Israel and Gentiles have received it, and they haven't worked for it. And the, and the Israelites, they don't receive righteousness, and, and, they ha- and they did work for it. And so as we've come through this chapter, chapter 9 of Romans, we've seen in verses 1 through 5, Israel had its privileges from God. And then 6 through 13, we see that They lost these privileges, and it's not because God was unfaithful. Or or 14 through 18, it's not because God is unjust. Or or 19 through 29, it's not because God is unfair. And we come to this passage today, and we see that it's all because Israel is proud, and therefore they did not receive the, the righteousness they worked to obtain. So as we come to this passage, I want us to see three things. First, I want us to see the righteousness of the Gentiles. Second, we'll see the unrighteousness of Israel. And then finally, we'll see the stumbling block to the unrighteous. So first, let's look at the righteousness of of the Gentiles. Chapter 9 has been talking about God's divine election. Last week, we we saw that some were made vessels of mercy, while others uh, were made vessels of wrath, and there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile. This is all men. But now Paul is making a distinction. But I want to say something about this distinction as we we begin. Paul is making a generalization. He's saying the Gentiles have received and the the Jews have not. I think he's using this, or, or I know that he's using this in a general sense. We know that Paul himself was a Jew and he has received this. And we know certainly that there are Gentiles who have not received this. And so we have to view this Gentile and this Israel as as general terms. 
a part representing the whole, but it's, it's not universal. And so he's talking about righteousness. Righteousness and unrighteousness. So what is righteousness? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines righteousness as this. The quality or state of being just or rightful. The quality of state of being just or rightful. Paul is talking about the pursuit of being just and right before God. The Gentiles, they did not seek after this. So now what is he talking about? Is he talking about morality? Is he talking about mere being just moral and being right? I don't think so, because we know that there have been moral Gentiles. There were people who did right things and were moral. Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that the law is written on the hearts of men, so we should not be surprised when men do things right who do not know God. So if it's, if it's not moral rightness, then what is it? Well, Paul here is talking about covenant rightness, about being right before God, the God of the universe. So it's not simple morality. So he's saying, these are those who have made no effort to be right before the God of the universe. This is the Gentiles. These have received righteousness. Those who have not worked for righteousness have received righteousness. How can this be? How can those who don't seek to obtain righteousness obtain righteousness? And Paul tells us, he says, they have received it by faith. This is, reinforces the argument that Paul's been making. Some are made vessels of wrath and some are made vessels of mercy. God loved Jacob and he did not love Esau. This is Paul's argument being played out. So what's it about? What is this all about then? Well, it's all about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign in all things. Even those who do not seek righteousness receive it by faith. His love and mercy is given to them. And it's not because of anything that was in them. And so let's stop for a moment and let's look at a point of application. What does this mean? Well, I think this is who we are in both literal and figurative sense. I do not know, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there is any ethnic Israel here. We're not ethnic Israel. The majority of us are Gentiles. We are literally, according to the Old Testament, not God's people in that sense. But it's also true of us figuratively. We may... Be moral people. We may do right things, but that does not make us right before God. And so we may may do good things, but as Paul says, even our righteousness, even the right things we do, is what? It's as filthy rags. It's nothing before God. The good things, the good works we do apart from Christ are nothing. And so I think this is true for me, and it's, it's true for all of us here. There's nothing we would do to follow God. There are many things, there are many people who don't even believe that there's a God of the universe. 
And so we have to ask ourselves, where do we stand before God? In what do we have our hope to be made right, to be made just before an infinite and holy God? And so Paul tells us, he's been telling us throughout Romans. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, what, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were like the Gentiles. We didn't seek after God, and yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are enabled to have the faith of Abraham. It's not a, a works faith, but what is he he's saying 4.3? Paul says this, Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now what does this not say? It doesn't say Abraham worked really hard and followed the law, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It doesn't say that. It says Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We have a better priest we have a better hope for our salvation and so we we've seen the gentiles and and their righteousness but now we look at israel and their unrighteousness the gentiles didn't pursue god but the israelites did who was israel they were god's chosen people they were a chosen race they received the law And they doggedly pursue it. They still, to this day, doggedly pursue the law. And so, they weren't unclean. They made sure that they were not ever ceremonial unclean. And if they did, they did all that they had to do to be clean again. They sacrificed in the temple. They they brought their goats and lambs and pigeons and all the things they had to bring to to have their sacrifices so that they could be right before God. They gave their tithe. They gave their tenth of all their possessions before God so they could be made right with God. They held the Sabbath. They did not work on the Sabbath day. They held the law so that they could be right before God. And we see examples of this in the New Testament, don't we? We see the Pharisee in the temple praying loudly so that all can hear. Or they give in front of everybody And they say, Lord, look, I'm not like the tax collector. And they give money out of their abundance. And they try to make themselves above reproach. And so if this is true, if if they work towards righteousness, why does Paul say to them they have not succeeded in reaching it? What was their problem? The problem is, he tells us here, that they did it on the grounds of their works and not. On faith. And so when they pray, they pray in arrogance. By not working on the Sabbath, they, they failed to help and love people. They gave out of, of their abundance, but not in faith. They gave out of, they were so rich and they gave, but they, it didn't affect them. They seek only after themselves and not after God. They are prideful and arrogant. They were convinced that they could work their way into heaven. All they had to do was pray enough prayers, give enough tithes, and they could earn that salvation. They could earn their spot before God. But Jesus exposes them, doesn't he? In Matthew 
5. I'm just going to read a small section of this. He says many different things, but he says in 521, You have heard it said that there are those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so they're like, yeah, don't murder. I haven't murdered. I'm good, God. I'm good, Jesus. We, we got that one. But then he goes on, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell fire, hell of fire. You hear what that says? Anyone who says to someone else, you fool. How many of us have insulted someone else and said, you're stupid, man, or something like that? We're liable to the pit of hell for that. Because we have murdered our brother or our sister in our hearts. Jesus exposes them. He goes on to talk about lust. He says, if you've committed lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery. In essence, he's telling them there is no way. It is not possible for you to work your way into heaven. You are all guilty before God. And what has Israel done? They've missed the point of Abraham. They've missed the point of their father Abraham. Because what does it say? It says Abraham worked hard enough and he got into heaven. But no. It says Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so again, I think we can see application here for ourselves. I think there are those amongst us, those in the church who believe they can work their way into heaven. Uh, evangelism explosion, they always, there's this question they, they ask often, and it's this. It says, if you were to stand behind or before God tonight, and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And there's any number of responses that I've heard people say they've received from this. They say, well, I'm a good person. I, I help people out when they need help. They talk about their good deeds. But I think they also talk about what they haven't done. I haven't killed anyone, right? I haven't cheated on my wife. I pay my taxes most of the time. These are the kind of things they say. They, they say, I can work my way into heaven, in essence. And I think we're guilty of this as well. We have our checklist, right? We've heard about this, our checklist. And we, we go before our checklist and we say, all right, well, I, I don't drink. I got that one. I don't, uh, I don't smoke. I uh, listen to Christian music. I, I pray and I do all these good things, right? And we, we kind of go down our checklist and we make our little check marks off. And in essence, what we're trying to do is, is get in our heavenly card punched, right? So if we go five or six times, then we get a free meal, right? Or something like that depending on where you get it, we're, we're punching our heavenly hand card. I think this is something we're all guilty of. I think this is something that I'm guilty of at times. I, I don't think. I know it's something that I'm guilty of. And yet, as Israel, all our thoughts are accountable before God. There is not one in this room who is not a thief. There is not one in this room who is not a murderer, an adulterer, a coveter. We have not loved God as we ought. We have, not, we have had other gods before him. We have not kept the Sabbath holy. We have not honored our mother and father. We are guilty of the law. With Israel, we are guilty. We cannot be good enough. And so we come to the question, why are we even here today? 
Are we just here to get that card punched? Are we just here at church because we, we feel we need to to earn our way into heaven? And what, are the, what are the symptoms of this? I think it's how we view the church, how we view being here. Is this, do we feel that church is an interruption to our week? Is it something we do out of compulsion, but we, we really don't want to be there? And what does this text say to us? It says you can't work your way into heaven. If that's why you're coming, why are you coming? And so we have to be made right. We have to be made right with God. If this is how we live, it's going to affect all of our lives. And so we've, we've seen the righteousness of the Gentiles, and we, we've seen the unrighteousness of, of the Israelites. But now let's see the stumbling zone of unrighteousness. Paul goes on to tell us here why they did not succeed. And he quotes from two passages out of Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 8.14, and the other is Isaiah 28.16. The first one says this, Isaiah 8.14, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so he's talking about, Isaiah is beginning here by talking about a rock, a rock of stumbling that will be a rock of stumbling to Israel, to both houses. He's talking about both the northern and the southern kingdoms at, at this point. It'll be a stone that'll be a trap and a snare. And he kind of combines this verse with the verse from Isaiah 28, which says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So Paul here is combining two verses. He kind of joins them together. Let me read what he puts here. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So why, what is Paul doing here? Why does he join these two verses? Well, I think Paul is doing a little bit of exegesis for us. He's interpreting both passages in light of each other. There's a stone that will be a stumbling block. And this same stone that will be a stumbling block is also a cornerstone, a sure foundation. These are the same thing. They're the same stone. And then we can go on to Psalm 118. And what does it tell us? It tells us there's a stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. So what is this stone? Who is this stone that is both a stone of offense and yet also a stone of salvation? Well, this is Christ. When you think about a stone that is rejected, it means it's no good for building. And who was made lower than Christ? Who was humiliated more than Christ? He was a stone that seemed good for nothing. And yet he has been exalted, as Psalm 118 tells us, he's been exalted. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, not many of us here are masons, I would not imagine. I could be wrong. But a, a mason would know what a cornerstone is, right? If, you, if you're building a structure, the cornerstone is the stone upon which all the weight is based upon. Or something like that. I probably have that a little bit wrong. But if you remove the cornerstone, the whole structure will collapse. 
It's the keystone, the capstone. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the arch in St. Louis, right? And you have the section at the top that if you remove that section, the whole thing would collapse. That's what a cornerstone is, a capstone. And this is what Christ has, has been made. He is the foundation on which all of our faith is based. Without him, it all crumbles. So I want you to think about this with me. Let's, let's say you're in the water, and you're, you're in danger of dying. And so you think to yourself, I have to find something that will keep me afloat. And so there's, there's some big object in front of you, and you can't see it, but in the distance you see something floating, and you're like, if I can just get there, if I can just swim over there, I will be safe. And so you work, and you try to get over there, but there's this thing in front of you, and you just can't get around it, and it, it just keeps hitting you in the head, and eventually you drown. Now what if I were to tell you the thing in front of you was a canoe? And the thing in the distance was a styrofoam cup. I know all analogies break down at some point, and this, this analogy is no different. It, it's not perfect. But in essence, what happened there is the thing that will save your life is right in front of you. And you fight and try to get around it. And you try to get to a styrofoam cup that will do nothing for you. And so you work and you swim and you put all your might into it. But in the end, it does nothing for you. Jesus comes. He is right before them. But Israel does not recognize him for what he is. They have a canoe right before him. All they have to do is get in the canoe. But he's, they don't recognize him. And I don't, don't hear me saying it's what we do to get in the canoe. It's just, like I said, it's an illustration. Jesus is right before them. But they fight and they work. They end up missing the point of all the law and the prophets. They're trying to hold to the law and hold to the prophets. And yet all the law and the prophets point to Christ. They miss it. Even the law becomes a stumbling block for them. There's no other way to God. So how do they respond? They have the Messiah before them. They have the thing before them that will save them. And how do they respond? They sought to trick him and to kill him. Jesus even quotes that psalm to him in Psalm 118 in one of these instances when they're trying to trick him and he says, the stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. He's telling them to their face, I'm that stone and you're rejecting me. And so we come to this. We have these two sides. And so we're presented the same two options. We can allow Christ to become a stumbling stone for us. I think this is done in both blatant and then also subtle ways. I think on one hand, you have those who live bold, moral lives. They will say, I am a moral person. I do good. But they also don't believe there's a God. They, they feel like if I, anything's going to happen for me, I have to do it. And so they pick themselves up and, and, they, and they try to do what they will. There are others out there who just flat out reject Christ. Think of the, the God delusion by Richard Dawkins, who basically says anybody who believes in God is, is an idiot, is stupid. He just completely rejects God. God, for him, has become a stumbling block to salvation. I think most of us fall into a more, particularly in the area of the country where we live, 
fall into this more subtle category. We believe there's a Messiah, but we want control of our salvation. We can do enough to pick ourselves up. Yes, yes, Jesus is there, but I have to reach out and grab him. It's what I do. It's what I can do. And so what do we do? We do just like Israel. We pray. We go to church. Maybe we even read scriptures. And yet, it's all done out of compulsion. It's all done out of a need to make ourselves right. It's not done out of love. And and a result of this is we do the bare minimum. And in essence, we have a dead faith. There is no love there. There is no compassion there. And so what is the solution to this? Well, Paul gives us the solution. He says the solution is to have faith. To be like the Gentiles who received it by faith and not by works. And so what are we to have faith in? This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. We are to have faith that Jesus was indeed the only son of the living God that he came and took on flesh was both man and God. He lived that life that the Israel was trying to live according to the law. He lived it perfectly, the life that we could not live. He then went to the cross. He suffered, he bled, and died. We were looking at this passage this morning from Isaiah. And as Tim read through it, I was like, this is, this is what we're talking about. Let me just read the first few cha- verses. In, in Psalm 53. Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is talking about Jesus. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from that men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And he, was, he bore our griefs. It says he was smitten, stricken, and afflicted for us. This is what Christ has done for us. We look at him and we esteem him not. And yet he has come. Man of sorrows, what a name, that he should come and die for us. This is the hope that we have. This is the faith that we have, that we need to have. And so we come to it. Where do you fit into this passage? Are you trying to work for your salvation? Are you trying to do enough so that you can earn a place before God? If you're trying this, then I tell you, it is fruitless. It is a fruitless endeavor. There's nothing that you can do. It will become an oppression to you, a stumbling block to you. The answer is to trust in God, to trust and have faith. And so that we can say with the hymn writer, it's on Christ, that solid rock that I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Dear most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have